Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science. With beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Adrian Clark, the tactical analyst, and, making his debut, Richard Amofa from the Beyond the Athlete podcast. It's the FA Cup final on Saturday. It might just turn out to be the strangest game of this endless season. I'm not talking about the balance of power between Arsenal and Chelsea, who each have sufficient flaws to guarantee a lively match. I still see the final as one of the game's state occasions, with its own myths and traditions. The fans give it life and colour. An empty Wembley will have an air of unreality. It'll be easy to forget that there's a lot riding on it. Especially for Arsenal, eh? Absolutely. Yeah, of course. First and foremost, it's an opportunity to win a trophy. And for Mikel Arteta to land his first piece of silverware would, would be big. And it would potentially persuade, you would imagine, some of the players that that, that are coming towards the end of their contracts, Aubameyang, immediately springs to mind. It might just tip the balance in Arsenal's favour in terms of keeping Aubameyang because they've won a trophy and he can see something building. And of course, because it offers European football next year. It's Yeah, it's, it, it is important. I think, I think that qualification for the Europa League is scoffed at in some quarters, but I think it's worth around £35 million a season to a club like Arsenal, which which is not an insignificant sum. And and it, it would help them, no doubt, with this rebuilding process that Arteta is undergoing, and it would help them attract players. And it would also, of course, conti- help to continue the development of all the young guys, the ones that have had so much football in the Europa League over the last few seasons, and, and it's allowed them to get into the Premier League team. So, yeah, for, for a number of reasons, it's, it's really, really big. For Arsenal, but look, it was big last season when it came to the Europa League. That you know the 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 carrot of the Champions League was was dangled in front of them. Chelsea didn't need to qualify; they were already in it, and and they didn't care, did they? And Chelsea swatted Arsenal aside. So make no mistake, Arsenal are, are underdogs, I think, for this game. But um, they've got a lot to play for. Yeah, and, and in you know, the wider context as well, Richard, we're at a critical stage of Mikel Arteta's development process and he you know needs to get the funds to actually you know bring players in what about the the priorities you know going forward what are the weaknesses that Arsenal will have to protect on Saturday and deal with going forward well I think you mentioned Arteta day I think you know even in this in this short tenure so far you can really see what he's trying to do in terms of building his, you know, footballing philosophy, both uh, defensively and attackingly, but but also being quite ruthless with those who don't fit that that style of play or those who are buying into his ideas. So, you know, you say the likes of Ozil, Guendouzi have already almost been sidelined because of that. We know the kind of how important this game is in terms of the Europa League and, and, and qualifying for that. And they really need to to uh, to do that in order to kind of strengthen and take the club to the to the next level. So, I think to be fair, Saturday is is a really big game for Arsenal. Now, I, I mentioned about see keeping a, a Bamiang, which is key, but also as you say, I think with Arsenal, there's always a thing of they need an extra three or four players. We've seen it for a few seasons now, and I think 
their failure or if they do fail to qualify for Europe next season, then they won't be able to do that. And I think those extra three or four players which Arsenal need, obviously with the revenue which comes in by qualifying for Europe and obviously being in Europe and the prestige that comes with it, will allow Arsenal to attract, as we say, just those three or four extra, extra tweaks in order to take the club forward and allow Arteta to really put his stamp on the team for next season. Mm. Yeah, we, we, we've all acknowledged the importance of extending Aubameyang. Uh, Aid, I just want you to dwell perhaps on Danny Ceballos. He had a quiet start, but you look at the broader impact that he's made recently in the restart. Since the restart, he's been the most successful defensive actions, which are 93 of those, most interceptions, 40. Ball recoveries in opposition half, also passes in final third. So he does the job in a very, very broad sense, doesn't he? Yeah, his stats are very, very good, Danny Ceballos, and he has improved. He got off to a flyer, actually. I was there for his debut against Burnley. He was brilliant. He was such an exciting player to watch. And then everything sort of plateaued, fell out of favour. He's back in now, and, and he's formed a, a good partnership with Granit Xhaka. And, and I think that he's probably persuaded Arsenal that, that he is someone to, to reinvest in, maybe for another loan next season. As well as he has done, is he the player that Arsenal need right now? I would suggest that he would be a handy player to have for next season. But stylistically, I'm not so sure, actually. I think that Arsenal have have other priorities. They need somebody more athletic inside the centre of the park. What what you've got in Xhaka and Ceballos, and, and they're playing very, very deep, and you'll see this in the FA Cup final, um, like they did against City. They have to... They have to sit deep because neither of them have great legs. They're not, they're not athletic. So they'll sit on the toes of the, of the, of the three centre-halves and deny space. And they'll, they'll win the ball back and they'll, and they'll release the forward guys and the, and the wing-backs. And they're very good at doing that. But I think moving forwards, Arteta wants to, wants to press a bit higher up. He wants more, more energy and athleticism inside the engine room. So, so I, I could see, even if he does stay... I can see him targeting a, a really strong and young defensive midfield player and, and somebody box-to-box. Box. Because what Arsenal lack at the moment is a midfielder that joins in. When balls come into the box, it's just the forward players. You need an Aaron Ramsey type in there to just cause a little bit of disruption, to score the odd goal, of course, as well. And and Sabayas won't do that. And Granit Xhaka won't do that. So, yeah, he's, he's a key man for now. But but next season, I, I see Arsenal maybe d- developing a style that doesn't suit him. Mm. What about the influence, Richard, of Tierney? You know, he's he's done well in that sort of auxiliary centre half role. He give he could give them width, which probably will be important to highlight Chelsea's weaknesses out wide, won't it? Uh, absolutely, as, as you perfectly alluded to there, Mike. Uh, with Chelsea's weaknesses at fullback, I think the width that Tierney brings to Arsenal, allows Aubameyang to almost attack inside and, and really uh, you know, attack the back post when the crosses are coming in from Pepe. We've seen in recent games, Pepe and Aubameyang really linking up very well. And I think Tierney really pressing on, looking likely will be Azpilicueta. We, we know that although Azpilicueta has the experience, we know that he might not have the legs to almost deal with that combination of Tierney and Aubameyang. And I think Tierney's been, as a whole, uh, he's had a really solid debut season at, at the Emirates. And I think we'll really see his qualities in the final. We know he's solid defensively, but as, as you said, going forward and, and providing that width. We, we, we know Arteta likes to stretch the play. We see that from when, from even from goal kicks, for example, where the defenders get nice and deep, but the, the attacking players and, and, full, and wing-backs get really, really high and, and like to stretch the pitch. And, and Tierney is, is key to doing that. So, as you say, you definitely expect to see that on Saturday and, and cause uh, Aspilicueta some problems down that left-hand yeah, side. Yeah, it's an interesting one because... And it's a, it's a selection dilemma, really, for, for Arteta because Tierney played as left centre-back in the semi-final and basically held David Luiz's hand. He tucked in very narrow and I lost count of the number of interceptions and clearances he, he made. He was brilliant in that role. Yet he is a better wing-back. He's a, he's a more of an attacking left full-back. So, so there's a real quandary there. Does he keep it super tight at centre-half? Because I think he's the best left-side centre-half available. Or does he play a more uh, positive style and, and, and push Tierney on his wing-back? Personally, I'd like to see Tierney at centre-half 
with with Saka out wide at wing back. But but there is of course Ainsley Maitland Niles in the mix as well because that's the role he played in the in the semi final. So yeah, that is the one area of the field I think we can't be certain of who Arteta will pick ahead of this FA Cup final. And and that decision actually could could make the difference between success and failure. I I sense that he will play it safe and put Tierney next to David Luiz because I just feel that David Luiz needs needs that support by his side. I would I think he would rather have Tierney than Kalasinac, for example. Yeah, you don't need a brain fade in that situation, do you? I suppose you know the, the, the one thing about the FA Cup final I alluded to it has its has its own mystique and traditions, and there are usually some pretty predictable storylines. And I suppose in this one, Richard Olivier Giroud. Now, will he score against his old club? Remember, he did score for Arsenal in the FA Cup final when they beat Villa 4-0. And I think only Frank Stapleton has done some similar. I think he scored for both Manchester United and Arsenal in finals. Is it written in the stars that Giroud is the one who's going to decide this final? I think so. I think even just taking away from that and just looking at his, his form post-lockdown, scored seven goals in all competitions and he's got big game experience and, and you know, he, he turns up in the big games. We know he he scored, as you, you know, you mentioned um, in the last final, scored against Arsenal in the Europa League final last season as well. I think it'll be interesting. I think if Arsenal set up with three at the back, he'll, you know, be 1v1 against him and, and, and David Luiz. And we saw how much of a difficult time he gave Harry Maguire in the semi-final, just in terms of his strength, his hold-up play and his intelligence off the ball. And so I, I do think that if he does kind of get into that running battle with David Luiz, you know, we, we, we've seen Luiz almost, you know, it'd be a test of his discipline, really be able to, to maintain that his concentration while battling with Olivier Giroud in that 1v1 situation but you know as we say his form coming into the game has, has been superb and I, I do think that he will have a deciding factor to play with with a goal with a trademark run towards the near post or, or, or an assist bringing, bringing someone else into play Yeah do you, do you think Aid it's likely to be a high scoring affair and if you're Frank Lampard do you play Caballero in goal? <laughs> well 100% would be picking Caballero I think he's the the more confident goalkeeper at the moment. I think Kepper might have played his last game for Chelsea. They need to move on from him and there are some very exciting options out there for them moving forward. So, yeah, no, I think Caballero will will get the nod. Do I think it'll be a high-scoring game? I, I think that because neither head coach fully trusts their defenders, I think that much is fair to say, Arsenal are only really going for back three because there is there is a slight lack of trust in them from the coach and I think it's the same for Chelsea you know I, I don't believe that Frank Lampard is, is fully confident in in Rudiger or Zuma necessarily on their own so Azpilicueta has, has tucked in to be that third centre-back with Reese James of course filling in a, a right wing back of late so no I, I in, a, in a strange kind of way I wonder if because their weaknesses are defensively each coach will will play it safe to some degree, and, and focus their attention on that. I don't, I don't know. It's a hard one to call. All I know is that Chelsea will dominate possession in, the, in this game. Arsenal will sit off like they did against Manchester City. And and, and what they need to be, Arsenal, is, is aggressive in the in the way that they turn the ball over, either high up the pitch or inside their own half, and, and spring those counters because Chelsea Chelsea do have a, a fragility to counters. And... and I think that Rich was right about Giroud's influence for Chelsea. If, if, he had, if he wins his personal duel with David Luiz, Chelsea have a very strong chance of winning this final. because Not just because he's likely to get across him at the near post, but, but the link-up play with Mount and with Pulisic or Willian, if he plays, um, it will be absolutely integral to the way Chelsea operate in this game. If those players dominate Arsenal, then, then it's, it could be a long... Long evening for the Gunners, unfortunately. But but no, I, I see it as a as quite an even game, and and I think both teams are likely to score. But but yeah, it's uh, I, I I'm not going to predict a three two or a four three. I don't think it's going to be carnage, um, if that's what you're alluding to. Mm. You you mentioned Christian Pulisic. You know this it is a game. It's a global game. The FA Cup final. You know the lot of noise always comes out of US soccer, doesn't it? Now with Pulisic. Is he going to be, I was going to say, the next great American star in in world football? 
but I actually struggled to remember the, the previous one. You know, if you're talking about Landon Donovan or people like that. Oh, he's the best. He's the best I've seen. Yeah, I think he's, I think he's sensational. And it took him a while to, to settle. But that performance, was it earlier in the season in midwinter at Burnley, where he scored a hat-trick? I think that really settled him down. And now that he's over his injury issues, he, he does remind me of Eden Hazard. And you can't really pay any higher compliment to Pulisic than that, can you? I've, I've actually looked at his stats, Pulisic, since the, since the lockdown. And he's averaging over three shots per game. Hazard last year averaged under two. In terms of the, the, the dribbles, not quite as many dribbles, not quite as many chances created. But goals, minutes per goal last season, uh, Hazard a goal every 182 minutes. Since the restart, Pulisic has had a goal every 163 minutes. So he's he's more prolific than Hazard was last year. So, so look, this is a player that, that I think has to start at Wembley. He left him out at Anfield. He came off the bench, of course, and, and influenced the game in a really positive way. I just think it would be it would be crazy of Lampard not to start Pulisic because I look at that matchup as well with Rob Holding in that channel where he's on the left and, and Holding on the right of a three, and Rob will need to produce the game of his life to con- contain him in the kind of form he is at the moment, Pulisic. I, I think it's a bit of a mismatch in terms of pace, and, and Arsenal need to somehow negate that. What about, Richard, the analysis of Frank Lampard's first season at Chelsea? Obviously, the trophy, silverware, would be the perfect conclusion, even if Champions League qualification realistically was the main job which is done. How do you see his impact and have you seen him develop as a, a coach and a manager over this first season? I think so. I think I think Lampard has probably surpassed expectation in terms of, I guess, if you look at the start of the season when everyone was making their predictions, nobody would have thought that that Chelsea would have got into the top four. What's impressed me is the fact that, okay, we know the situation that he's had to bring in the young players due to the embargo, but um, you know the fact that he's integrated the likes of Mount very well. We see Reese James coming on leaps and bounds also with the more experienced players like Giroud. Nasbunicueta, William, he's done very well with that. And yeah, we have seen him develop, I think, anyway. I think a big example of that was the Manchester United game in, in the semi-final in the fact that, yes, OK, you know, we know how Chelsea have their deficiencies you know, on the transition, on the break. I think they've conceded eight goals that way. And that's something they will need to look at. They've conceded far too many goals this season. But in terms of the way they marshalled Manchester United, especially in midfield, and you know, I think he sussed out the fact that you know United like to play through Matic to kind of get the ball moving towards Pogba and Fernandez, and he really pressed United high up the pitch that game. He got the likes of Mount and 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 uh, the other four player, I think it's William that day to really really press high, and he really gave United problems with his tactics there. So I think that was a good example of his kind of development as as a coach you compare that to the first game of the season where, where Chelsea lost to United 4-0 almost kind of went full circle with that so I've been very impressed with him of course you know he has got issues to deal with defensively goalkeeper area but you know you've seen that the likes of Werner Ziyech coming in and so things are looking very exciting for them moving forward. So one club with a vested interest in this final won't be there Wolves they qualify for the Europa League if Chelsea win. Now, there is going to be special dispensation for clubs going deep in Europe, which is obviously good management by the Premier League. But when you look at what Wolves have been through, they started their pre-season on June the 27th last year. They had their first game on July the 25th. If Chelsea do win, they'll be in the second qualifying round of the Europa League on September the 17th and still have that programme. They're, they're starting again next week with the uh, uh, second leg against Olympiacos. That just shows you, doesn't it, a, how much physical pressure is on these players in, in lockdown. Yeah, it's remarkable, isn't it? The the workload that Wolves have had to put up with. And, and this is with a head coach in Nuno that, that doesn't really like to use too many of his of his squad, does he? He's, he's a stickler for the same starting eleven where, where possible. So, no, I think their achievements have been been incredible, really, 
this season. All I'll say is that the, the lockdown did allow them to have that breather, the same as everybody else. So so it's not as if they've got a whole year relentlessly playing football. But but yeah, they've, they've certainly had it tougher tougher than most. And I'm, I'm really impressed with them. I know that they lost to Chelsea on the last day and that Chelsea did a good job on them, really. And 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 looking at their form, you're now beginning to, to question, aren't you, are they capable of, of beating Manchester United in the next round should they make it? Yeah, we don't know. You'd, you'd have to make Manchester United favourites, I think, to to beat Wolves in in that potential clash. But but yeah, no, it's been it's been terrific from from Wolves and and Nuno, his stock continues to rise. The 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 key for them now is is keeping hold of of Jimenez and and Traore. But I I don't sense that they they will lose them before next season. I really don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think players have looked tired, haven't they? So we've got the physical aspects. Richard, I just want to dwell on on the underlying message of the FA Cup final, which is obviously devoted to football's mental health message. You know, as I said, it's going to feel a pretty weird match. In terms of players and their own personal welfare, do you think we as fans and observers pay enough attention to the strain that some of these players are under? I think as a whole, no. You just have to look at the abuse that you know players face on social media on a daily basis you know you see the the incidents of racism which which have really kind of stained the game a lot over the past 12 months and something that doesn't look like going away unfortunately we kind of need the authorities to act tougher on that but in terms of you know say player welfare definitely not uh, don't get me wrong I think players know that they'll be under scrutiny and I think where it's fair I think they'll understand that and I think they appreciate that. But where it goes over the top in terms of abuse and, as you say, especially on social media, where it is 24-7 now, it's, you know, it's really difficult to, to, to get away from that. We, we had Zahar talking recently about mm. um, the abuse that he's been suffering and how he doesn't even have Twitter on his phone anymore because it's not an enjoyable experience for him. The same as Instagram. You know, yes, they are footballers, but they are human beings at the end of the day. They should be able to enjoy an element of, of this kind of privacy or enjoy using social media like, like the next man and woman. So, you know, for him to not even be able to open his DMs, uh, direct messages, because, uh, you know, you say there might be some, some lovely messages in there from adoring fans, but you always get drawn to that, that one or two really negative comment and as you say the abuse and racism that he, he suffered has, has, has been a disgrace really so it's something that we definitely need to see improve moving forward and and, and Mike on the, this is the FA Cup final of course the FA Cup is a competition that involves clubs you know that are in non-league as well and, and lower down the pyramid and and I don't think enough attention is paid to the to the mental well-being of, of lower league footballers particularly at the moment I think this is the toughest summer ever in terms of of being a lower league footballer that's out of contract and you just wonder what where are the support networks for these guys at the moment who are clubless and who are searching for employment and finding that the door is closed because clubs have had to slash their budgets they can't really take on too many new faces it it is going to be a really challenging time for hundreds, maybe thousands of, of good professional and semi-professional footballers that are basically go, going to find themselves on, on the scrap heap. So so I do hope, I know this is the heads up FA Cup final, it's a fantastic venture. I do hope that out there, there, there are support networks for these, for these lads. Yeah, because the numbers that you talk about there, Ada, scary, aren't they? You're talking about maybe up to 1,400 professionals looking for a job in very very straightened circumstances and trying to get into clubs which themselves don't really know their their short-term future so yeah it's a it's a mess in that sense I just also want to look at the other side of the game you know it's it's become a cliche that the championship playoff final is the richest game in world football and you know it's basically think of a number and double it isn't it how much it's worth I don't know if you saw, you know, the Brentford game last night, Richard. They qualified for Tuesday's playoff final. You know, Cardiff have got it all to do at Fulham later on today, this evening. How impressed were you 
with Brentford and the style of which they played. I thought it was a fantastic game in terms of the quality of the football, the clarity of, of the vision, the, the, the movement, the passing was terrific. But also Brentford basically buck the system, don't they, with the way that they approach the game and the recruitment processes that they go through. No, 100%. I was really impressed with them yesterday, mainly because we know about how good their form was post-lockdown. But then in the two games that really mattered where the pressure was on, we, we saw them crumble. And I think there were a lot of questions being asked of them going into the playoffs. And you know, then when they lost the first leg, again, there's a case of can Brentford handle the pressure? But they really stepped up last night. I think getting the early goal was, was really key for them. But um, yeah, as you said, I've been really impressed with, with them this season. Of course, everyone talks about their front three, Watkins, Remo and, and, and Said Benrahma contributing 59 goals between them this season. And I've been really impressed with Rico Henry at left back as well. And I just think it's the, the way they, they play, as you mentioned, that, you know, incisive passing and quite direct at times and giving their attacking players that kind of freedom and license to really show what they can do has made them, as you say, probably one of, if not the most exciting teams in the Championship, barring Leeds, of course. And it would be, be great to see them in the Premier League. I think, almost from a romantic perspective, it's a bit sad that it won't be at Griffin Park, some famous old stadium, but going into the new stadium and, and, and that kind of new dawn, especially with, with, their, with their model and, and everything like that, it'll be really interesting if they do get promoted to see who they will be targeting to, to bring in, because obviously, as we know, they do need to strengthen, uh, I'd say, at the back as well. So it'll be interesting to see who they target, as opposed to, you know, I don't think they'll they'll make too many big signings in terms of that, because I think they've got really good structure and cohesion within the squad, but I do think they need a few tweaks here and there. So it'll be interesting to see how they approach the market this summer. Mm, do you think that they will probably be the best equipped of the four playoff teams to survive in the Premier League? I do actually, yeah, because they've built something over a period of time whereby they, they can afford to lose the odd player here and there because they've always got the next one lined up. It's it's quite a you know strong philosophy for, from Thomas Frank. It's something that the players are all very comfortable in. It's they don't flip flop between between styles or formations too too often, and 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 they're a young, hungry side that that are developing all the time. I think that it would have come too soon for Swansea, although although I, I like what Steve Cooper's doing there. I don't quite think that Cardiff are, are ready to compete in the Premier League. And, and Fulham, Fulham are interesting. Fulham on paper would, would cope as well as Brentford. They've probably got uh, you know better known players, but Fulham's style is all about controlling games and, and, and they do that very well at championship level. They don't have a great incisiveness, they're very reliant on, on Mitrovic, but it's enough in the Championship to, to get them over the line in a lot of games. I think in the Premier League, they'll struggle to dictate games in the same way and they might have to adapt their style quite a lot, Fulham, if they were to to prevail. So, yeah, for me, Brentford could, could do a bit of a Sheffield United. I, I think they're so comfortable in the way that they play. I, I do think... Yeah, Pontus Janssen would would concern me, even though he's a talismanic figure there, capable of inspirational performances. I just don't know if he is Premier League quality. I like the boy next to him, Ethan Pinnock. The keeper's good. The, yeah, the full-backs are excellent. Up top, Ollie Watkins. He's, he's a definite Premier League player. Saeed Benrahma is 100% a Premier League player. And Breno is, is, is developing well as well. He's still young. So, no, they, they've got guys that, that are ready. Um, I just worry that that Ben Rama, whether they 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 go up or not, Ben Rama might actually be the one that that sold because he'll be worth a lot of money. Yeah, you mentioned um, Sheffield United there, Aid. Yeah, let's look back at the season if we could. Obviously, there's a lot of football still to be played, but I'm just thinking about manager of the year. The LMA gave it to Jurgen Klopp, probably predictably enough. I would have been tempted to go for Chris Wilder. Okay, Sheffield United finished ninth in the end. In, in in one sense, you know they missed. You could say they missed out on Europe, which basically gives you an idea of how well they did. You know, as I say, he's probably my manager of the year. If you had to pick anyone else out, Richard, who would it be? 
Oh, that's a, that's a good question because I, I I had Chris Wilder down as mine as well, just purely because of, for the for the reasons that you mentioned, and also if you look at how the how well the team is set up, you can see they're so well coached, so well drilled, and and that's probably something that he deserves so much more credit for because you see teams often come up you see the likes of Norwich for example everyone thought they would do really well as opposed to Sheffield United who everyone well the majority of people thought that they would they would finish bottom if we're being honest but as you say you mentioned Norwich there you know they're kind of they've almost tried to adopt the same tactics as they did in the championship and they just fell short they weren't good enough defensively that open style you know just isn't wasn't good enough and as um, Aid mentioned there with, uh, with Fulham and they come up in terms of like they like to control games they're not going to be able to do that and they haven't been able to do that at Norwich so um, you see like Sheffield United you say you know the three at the back the rewarding centre-backs um, very solid in midfield and you can see that clear structure which they've worked really hard on on the training ground so I would give that to Chris Wilder for sure. Mm. Anyone you'd like to commend Aid? Yeah Ralph Hasenhutl just think that the way he turned around Southampton is just an incredible feat of management because this was a team that got spanked 9-0. They were they were rock bottom. They were heading towards the championship. They were all over the place. And I don't know what he did behind the scenes, but 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 whatever he did was was outstanding management because he got them believing again. I think he simplified his tactics. He went back to what he believes in and it it, it clicked. And they, I mean, in the second half of the season, Southampton were were in almost Champions League form, weren't they? So, so I think I think that that, that he's a, he's strong tactically, he's bold, he's adventurous. The pressing's great. Danny Ings was a wonderful piece of recruitment as well. So, so yeah, Hassan Hootel, I think, w- w- would make the podium for me. Okay, then let's look at transfers because they they always dominate attention, don't they? Which has been the steal of the season? Do you think, Richard? You know. I for for my purposes, it's not quite a steal because of the money they paid. But Bruno Fernandez, eight goals, seven assists since he's gone to United, has had a huge impact uh, on that team. What's been the best transfer in your view this season? Yeah, I mean there have been a few good ones, and I guess a special mention for for Dean Henderson at Sheffield United. 13 clean sheets. I think he's been excellent. But uh, I'm going to go for Danny Ings. I think. Yes, he cost uh, around twenty million pounds, but he's he's paid that back in uh, in, in full and and more even with his twenty two goals. I think he's just been superb this season, all kinds of goals and just his all round play as well. His link up play with the other attackers in the squad, I think he's done he's done excellently. And if we just look at the kind of backstory to that, two serious knee injuries, and you're almost thinking, you know, where where's his career going after those injuries? But he's worked so hard to get back to get back fit and get back playing even and then to really take his game on leaps and bounds and as you say be, be a real threat in your position box I think it's fantastic I, I even think it's probably a bit unlucky that the Euros were cancelled this year because he would have been definitely knocking on the door to be in that squad so um, no I'd definitely go for Danny Ings for this one mm. What about you Aid? I've got two steals two absolute steals for you one is Jordan Ayew two and a half million pounds I mean He's he's probably been Palace's best player. He's certainly been their best forward player in a in a season where Zaha didn't really catch fire. I think that goal he scored was it against West Ham. That's worth two and a half million on its own, isn't it? I mean that is that was that was just just sublime. So he's someone that gets gets a big shout. And and keep your eye on Gabriel Martinelli at Arsenal. I mean this is a boy that costs just six million pounds from Ituano. In Brazilian regional football, now I think he's, he he scored a lot of goals this season when he was fit and available. Good goals as well, relentless energy. He's injured now, and I think he might be out until Christmas. But but there is a real player there in Gabriel Martinelli. I think he's he's going to be a star of the future. And that six million price tag, well, I think you could you you could put a note on that. You know, very very soon he'll be worth he'll be worth um, you know six, uh, you know upwards of sixty million pounds. He, he's got that much ability. Mm. So when we pat recruitment departments on the back, we also have to give them a kick up the backside now and again. Worst deal of the season, I'll go for Roberto Jimenez, the goalkeeper who was free for West Ham from Espanyol. 
he was cataclysmically bad, wasn't he? And, you know, there was a clue, surely, that Espanyol had only played him four times in two years. Uh, he's now been shipped out to Alaves on loan, still got a year left on his contract. I know it's really difficult, guys, but have you got anyone else in that category or even close to that category? Well, I've I've been quite disappointed with Joe Linton this season at Newcastle. I've just been disappointed with... I was just expecting so much more from him. I know he came in, in good form, but yeah, I've just been really disappointed with just what he's brought to the side. I mean, even his lack of goals, fair enough, but his all-round play just hasn't been up to scratch in terms of where you've needed your striker to hold the ball up and alleviate pressure hasn't done that as much. I think he's just shot of confidence as well. I think he's one of the post-lockdown games. I think he was Sheffield United where you're thinking, OK, he's getting his chance here. I mean, well, in the first half, he did score eventually, but, um, you know, he was through on goal and you're thinking, OK, just bury this in the bottom corner and he completely fluffed his lines. And that was just an example of a striker who, you know, really kind of lost his confidence, lost his form. You say, thankfully, he did, he did score eventually, but... Um, yeah, he's one that's really disappointed me. Same as uh, as Haller at West Ham as well. Again, come for big money, I think it's 45 million, and has really not lived up to his uh, to expectations. Mm. Mm. Now, West Ham don't have the greatest record in this department, do they, eh? <laughs> no, Haller has been a disappointment, but I, I can see why they signed him. Antonio's obviously outshone him massively towards the end of the season, so... It'll be interesting what they do with Haller moving forward. My worst deal of the season, I'm going to channel my inner Seb Stafford-Bloor here and go for Tangi and Dombele. Let's not forget how much he cost Spurs. £63 million. Pounds. I mean, he's he's not looked like a £6 million pound player for the, for the bulk of this season. He's someone that I, I liked before, so I could understand the, the acquisition, but it's just not worked out very well at all. And, and, and Jose Mourinho doesn't appear to... To fancy him, so, so that is that is a big flop. The other flop is someone that was tipped up as being an absolute bargain, and that's Moyes Keane at Everton. Young player, twenty-five million, I think it was ballpark figure. Everyone thought, "Wow, what a steal that is!" But he's had six starts, two goals, and looks a little bit lost at, at Everton. He's, he's way behind Richarlison and and Calvert Lewin in the pecking order. So, so y- y- even though they were two signings that I wouldn't have criticised at all at the time. And Don Bele and, and Keane have, have, have been bad ones. Mm. I'd like to get your thoughts on this, Aid as well, in terms of the biggest waste of talent this season. I'm going to go for Meza Ozil. You know, I, I can <laughs> see blame on both sides. That, you know, here's someone who has been feather-bedded with a ridiculous contract and potentially has shown up some character flaws in the way that he's dealt with the adversity that's uh, befell him. But also I'm looking at the way that he's been managed. Do you think he's been managed effectively? And, you know, is the blame, as I said, on both sides rather than just one way? I'm completely puzzled. I really am. I'm, I, I don't know what's gone on behind the scenes. I don't know who who is deciding that Mesut Erzo is, is ostracised, that he's out of the squad, because... Because before the lockdown, he, he was buying into Arteta's methods, working really hard, and, and his performances were pretty good. And I don't know what has changed in the interim period. Something has gone off behind the scenes, whether it's coming from, from the high, you know, higher echelons of Arsenal, whether it's coming from Arteta. I don't, I don't have a clue, but, um, but it is a waste of talent. I absolutely agree with you. Right now, he should be in the matchday squad. In the current formation, he... I don't know if he is a starter. I, don't, I can't really see a position for him in in a three four three, but but I would always have him available because he's such a gifted player and he can unlock the door. And Arsenal are the least creative Arsenal side I've seen in my lifetime. Only four teams have created fewer chances from open play than Arsenal this season. Now Arsenal, that's one of their USPs, isn't it? It's they're creative. They they create bundles. Not anymore, not not at the moment. So, and and much of that I think is down to to Urza's absence. So yeah, it's, it's a good shout. I, I'll, I'll just chuck in, if I may, uh, Ryan Sessegnon. I feel as if his career is is sort of not a crossroads, but but it's not worked well, has it? This move to Spurs, clearly very talented, a player that that ripped it up in the Championship, but but hasn't. It doesn't seem at home at Spurs, and and it isn't isn't loved. It seems by 
by Jose Mourinho. So, so yeah, you do wonder what's going on there. Why isn't he being used more often, uh, Ryan Sessegnon? Will he have to to move on? As I'm sure that Meza Erza will will have to move on. Mm, there's some talk, isn't there, that Sessegnon will be just shunted out on loan next season, which I think is a, again is a waste. Are there any other players, Richard, that you look at and you think you should be better than you are, mate? Yeah, absolutely. I didn't mention him in my kind of worst deals of the season because I thought there were a couple worse than him. But for me, Endon Bele, we all know his quality on the ball. But I think in the Premier League, especially, you know, in, in that midfield engine room, you need to offer more defensively as well and I know he's had his injury problems but he's really struggled to regain his fitness and I think you know that is just almost part and parcel of what you need to be in the Premier League we know about the intensity of of the game in England and that's something I've been really surprised and disappointed by because we've seen him at Lyon dominate games both on and off the ball so that was something that I was really excited to see him doing in the Spurs shirt this season but he just hasn't done that enough again on, on the ball moves the ball really well, he's got good feet and, uh, you know, he tries to create. But as you say, it's going that other way and, you know, providing that protection for for the back four, uh, especially with Spurs, you know, we, we, we know that they like to play kind of that high-intensity football and um, it's something that he's just not quite adapted to yet and it's really impacting his game. So hopefully in this break, he can, you know, maybe regain that fitness, that sharpness and we can really see the best of him next season. But, I've been really disappointed by whether, as I say, it's his injuries or his application, but um, that really needs to improve next year. Mm. OK, well, this is where I'm going to sort of do a bit of gymnastics and pat myself on the back. Uh, <laughs> breakthrough player. <laughs> you know, I, I picked Mason Greenwood before the start of this season. Now, and it's, I think, if you look at his impact, it says everything that the most obvious comparison is with Rain Rooney. Uh, Rooney scored six goals in his first 34 Premier League games. Greenwood scored 10. And there's just so much to come. And he's so accomplished. And, you know, we go right back to Eric Cantona and the the special weight of the Manchester United shirt. He's been fantastic. Now, I know United's a club close to your heart, Richard. Would you agree with that? Absolutely, I've been I've been really impressed with with him. As I say, I just I love the fact that he's just so positive and you know very. Uh, he, he's not afraid, is he, in front of goal? And I think it's one of his great qualities is the fact that in those tight areas in the box, he just needs half a yard. And the fact that he's adept with both feet makes him such a threat to opposition defenses. You know, as you say, he can go either way, just get that half a yard inside the box. And the fact that he's he's stepped up. Showing that fearlessness, as you know, you mentioned with uh, Wayne Rooney there, you know, he's, he's been excellent. So really excited to see him and his progression uh, next season. OK, hey, Danny, you know, th- this has been the age of the young player in many senses, hasn't it? There's a lot oh. of young players coming through, great generation. Anyone Definitely. in particular impressed you? Lots have, really. Look, Green, Green has been exceptional. I'm so, I'm so excited about him. Chelsea deserve credit, don't they, for, for blood and kids? I, I think Mason Mount, you have to call this a... A sensational breakthrough season for him. I, I know that he was good for Derby last year in the Championship, but but it, it, no one really knew if he was good enough to be a star in the Chelsea first team, and, and he has. He, he looks so at home. He's, he's contributing big moments now. So, yeah, Mason Mount. And, and I'll, I'll chuck in Bakayo Saka as well. I mean, he's, he's only 18. You forget that. I mean, Mount's a couple of years ahead of him. Bakayo Saka is, is, a, is a kid. He's a baby. And he's had 12 assists this season. Rarely have I seen a young player as calm when it comes to the final ball, the final cross, the final pass as, as Bukayo Saka. Greenwood is lethal with both both feet. He's one of the best young finishers I've ever seen. But Saka, in terms of his end product, is right up there in terms of, of 18-year-olds that I can remember. He, his decision-making is, is tremendous. Let's look then at, at transfers which are, which are going through. Obviously, the window's been open for a couple of days. I just want to look at Brighton, if I could, Richard, specifically Adam Lalana. Three-year deal. Looks like there's going to be some coaching responsibilities thrown into that at the back end of it. Does that tell you the way that Brighton are developing as a club? And, you know, they've got a strategy, haven't they? Yeah, absolutely. I think we, we saw that... I think kind of bringing in Graham Potter, I think, you know, he's got his his ideals and his, his style of play 
more ease in the eye as well. And I think Lalana, such a technically gifted player, falls into that category as well. So it'll be interesting to see how he fits in next season. But I think as well, his experience, you know, obviously with Liverpool getting to the heights of the game, you know, he, he can really, you know, feed that kind of experience and, and know-how and knowledge within the squad because I think Brighton can really kick on now. I think they've had a few seasons where they flirted in and around the relegation zone and I know that they're, they're looking to, to progress on and kick on this summer. And I think Alana's a, a, a big coup for them and he'll have a great impact on the squad. At the other end of the, the scale, the recru- recruitment scale, if you like, a Manchester City, looks like they're going to sign Ferran Torres, who's probably the best young winger in, in Spain, Valencia winger, only about twenty twenty five million pounds which you know, I say only, but in, in modern terms, that's not a lot of money. Is that a sign that City are going to start to get a bit busy in this market? They're not messing around, are they? So, yeah, that's a, a, if I was a City supporter, I'd be really encouraged by it. Also with the profile of, of the player, someone young that will be developed under under Pep Guardiola. And, and they did, I guess, need to, to fill the hole that Leroy Sane has left. I, I, I was a little bit surprised. Who knows what's gone on behind the scenes there? I was a little bit surprised they were so willing to just let Bayern Munich have him. Because I just think Lee Rossane, when he's fit and firing, is can, can be the best left winger in the world. He's, he's just exceptional. So, so yeah, will he will he become the superstar that he's capable of being at, at Bayern? Maybe. Um, but yeah, Torres. Yeah, it, it's a sensible move. They're going to to replenish their squad with younger players, I'd imagine. David Silva's also going. So yeah, onwards and upwards. They they are not. They're not going to hold back Manchester City in the market. They are upset with some of their Premier League rivals. We know that due to their 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 stand their stance on 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 City's UEFA dealings. So I'm expecting them to be really aggressive off the pitch this summer. And when they get back on the pitch in September, they'll they'll be at it as well. I'm sure. Yeah. Well, just. Trying to pull everything together now. Uh, you know, Richard, as is your uh, newbie today, I'll give you first dibs. Thought for the day. Any sort of issue that you'd like to get off your chest? <laughs> this is quite a trivial one, but I've um, seen a lot recently about proportion of a striker's penalty goals, uh, goal scored from penalties, I should say, and how strikers are almost ridiculed if they do have a high proportion of this. I mean, we see it even with Bruno Fernandes and his contribution. You see lots of people say, oh, well, most of them are penalties, but you can see his contribution in terms of the assists and how he brings the play together. But I think with a striker, I think, you know, at the end of the day, you, we, we all know a, a, goal, a goal is a goal. And, you know, if they're contributing in, in other ways in terms of, you know, hold-up play and other intangibles and you know, winning their duels, for example, then I don't think it's a, it's a really big issue. I, I see, for some reason, I see it almost ridiculed, but... Um, and I know it's fantastic. You have the likes of Andy Cole, uh, Mo Salah, who do you know don't really take penalties and score a lot of goals. But it just seems a bit strange to me that this is a a, a source of ridicule when at, at the end of the day a goal is a goal and it's a difference between getting the three points or not. So it, it's, it's, it's it's quite trivial, but something that I think is quite frustrating when it comes to these kind of arguments. <laughs> Yeah, well, it was no surprise that uh, a certain Jose Mourinho weighed in on that one, was there? Aid, what, what would you like to say, sir? Well, I put Paul Cook. Paul Cook has, has, has had to resign from his post at Wigan Athletic, who have been left high and dry by the EFL. And, yeah, they've been relegated, pending an appeal, of course. And and it just, to me, feels that the, 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 the league has let them down in terms of sanctioning owners that, that came in and then within a couple of weeks decided not to put any money in and to, to put the club into administration. So 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 a thought for Paul Cook, I think that he that he'll be very sad to, to leave that club. He won't be out of work long. He'll be snapped up in no time. But yeah, thought for him and also a thought on, on the EFL. How how much longer is it going to be? How much how much more can its members take of them before they start to consider the possibility of of a, of a breakaway because because it's it's not working. We still don't know who's going to be playing in what league next season. The season, you know, it's it's long finished now, and the futures of Barnsley and Wigan and Sheffield Wednesday and and Birmingham and other clubs are still up in the air. 
and and I think a lot of that is down to indecision and and a, and a lack of strong leadership at the EFL. They need to get their house in order quickly. Yeah, hear, hear. I'll dwell on something that uh, Richard mentioned earlier in the show, Will Sahar. Now, one of the most encouraging elements of what's been a pretty depressing year has been the willingness of footballers to lend their support to key causes and important principles. I'm thinking of Marcus Rashford, Raheem Sterling, Jordan Henderson, Mark Noble, to mention only a few who've looked beyond the game to exert their influence. But as Richard said earlier, problems remain. Racial abuse in particular seems to be growing in intensity. Now, I'm sure that you, like me, were shocked by the filth that a 12-year-old sent to Wilf Sahar. And Sahar's admission in an interview with Darren Lewis that he was subjected to 50 more such racist messages in the aftermath of that incident should be a tipping point. I think a social media boycott by our leading footballers would have huge impact. It might not change diseased minds, but it will prove that enough is enough and change has to come. I hope you agree with that. Let me know if you do. And thanks once again for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.